Jesus' parable about the unrighteous manager, which we covered last week, was addressed to his disciples, but with an eye toward the Pharisees as well. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, our passage says, were listening to these things, all that Jesus was talking about, and scoffing at him. The barb found its mark, apparently. And so considered thus, in its wider context, as addressed to the disciples and the Pharisees, the meaning of the parable we covered last week comes into focus. The Pharisees, more than the disciples, are the unrighteous manager. To them had been entrusted the master's estate. They were the nation's self-appointed shepherds. Yet, like the unrighteous manager, they squandered their possessions. They squandered that which was entrusted to them. They were lovers of money, and their avarice, their greed, led them to oppress the nation's most vulnerable. Jesus will accuse the Pharisees later of devouring widows' houses, of plundering those most in need. As Jesus said, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. So despite all their apparent righteousness, beneath the surface, the Pharisees were consumed with greed and wickedness. And so if the Pharisees are indeed the unrighteous steward, then Jesus necessarily is the rich man, the owner of the estate. And he comes to call them to accounting. Running throughout Luke's gospel is that very theme. Jesus, the scripture says, is a sign to be opposed. He's one who is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he's come to separate the wheat from the chaff. The wheat he will gather into his barn, and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And it's typified, this accounting that Jesus comes to bring in the prophecy of Malachi Three. I'll read it for you. It says, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. There's John the Baptist. And the Lord who you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. And like a fuller's soap, he will sit as a smelter and purify of, of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present the Lord offerings in righteousness. The Pharisees had been given a long and great freedom, a long leash and great freedom to operate. Much like the unrighteous manager. But it's time to give an account. The refining fire has come. Their options are two. Either submit to the flames and be purified, or harden themselves and be consumed. So it's quite clear 
is it not, the meaning of the parable. As the unrighteous manager repented and secured his future by means of the master's clients, so the Pharisees are to repent and use the wealth that they had gained unrighteously to help the poor and thus change their destiny. Zacchaeus, a man whom we'll meet later in the gospel, who himself was an unrighteous manager, represents the right response to Jesus' summons. Luke 18, verses 8 and 9, Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. Zacchaeus, of course, was a tax collector. And they were notorious for taking from the most vulnerable. Of course, because the most vulnerable could not defend themselves. And yet when he's called to repentance, Zacchaeus recognizes what he must do. Take that, we, that which he gained unrighteously, sell half his possessions, give back to the poor, and if he's defrauded anyone, return four times as much. Now this very same call to repentance is placed before the Pharisees. The question is, how will they respond? And the passage reads, they were scoffing at him. It means quite literally to turn their noses up at Jesus. He presented them with an opportunity to repent, but they denied that they needed to repent at all. They denied that they had done anything wrong. And so what can be said to such hardened people? The only words that the Lord has for them are, denouncement. Luke 16 verse 15. You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of man, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Though the masses were taken by the Pharisee charade, believing them to be men of high esteem, righteous and worthy of praise, Jesus knew their hearts. He understood what was going on beneath the surface. Inwardly, he says, they were detestable before God. And so these events, particularly the callousness of the Pharisees, forms the backdrop, backdrop uh, the grid through which the parable about Lazarus and the rich man must be read. It's yet another warning, and a very sober warning, I might add, about the terrible fate that awaits them if they refuse to amend their ways. It's important, however, to underline the context once more. The parable is addressed in-house, so to speak. Not to sinners, not to those out there, but to the Pharisees, self-professed believers, and specifically to leaders. The parable that we're about to study illustrates in its most immediate sense God's righteous judgment upon church leaders who abuse their authority and misuse those under their care. James, the Lord's brother, strictly warns about such a thing. James chapter 3 verse 1, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. 
So if this passage is about anyone potentially roasting in Hades, it's not sinners, but it's most likely me. The Apostle Peter says the same thing. Judgment begins, he warns, in the household of God. And so it's easy to hear these words and to sidestep the force of them by imagining that they're for others, by imagining that they're for those outside of God's household. It's those people, the sinners and the unrighteous, who are under the threat of imminent judgment, we tell ourselves, and quietly and conveniently excusing ourselves from the table. But the Apostle Paul doesn't want to let us off the hook so easily. He says, but do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Romans 3.3. So these are hard words indeed, but they're hard words for us. Jesus would have us to examine ourselves, the church. So our parable opens, verse 19. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. The rich man's life is presented to us in the most lavish of terms. He habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, Jesus says. The fine linen would be worn as an undergarment, and the purple a robe that would be draped over him. Two things, purple and fine linen, available only to the 99th percentile, the richest of the rich. And not only that, the rich man lived in joyous splendor every day. He not only prospered, but no trial or hardship ever befell him. It was always and only happiness on his estate. Then we're introduced to Lazarus, a completely wretched figure, the very opposite of the rich man, verses 20 and 21. And a poor man named Lazarus laid at his gate, or rather was laid at his gate, covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Lazarus was laid at the rich man's gate, apparently too sick to do anything for himself. Thus he was there outside this rich man's estate, that he might collect alms. At the time, there was no welfare, no institutional homes, or anything of that sort. If one was poor, they depended completely upon the mercy of others. First their family, and then their friends, and then strangers. But it looks like Lazarus, the man we're dealing with here, has nobody to provide for him. Some generous person probably just took him and laid him outside the rich man's gate, hoping that someone might come and be able to help him. And yet, poor Lazarus was given nothing. He laid outside the rich man's gate, the passage says, longing to be fed with crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. To his physical suffering was added and heaped on top the more acute suffering of scorn and rejection. He was ignored. He was disregarded, left to waste away while everyone passed by. 
So apparently the rich man was so full of joy, his tears so welling with happiness that he somehow missed Lazarus right outside his property. And so Lazarus' company were only the dogs that came and licked his sores, and yet he himself, this man, was not considered worthy of even the dog's food. Verses 22 and 23 continue. Now, the poor man died, and he was carried away by angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. Now, after death, their roles are dramatically reversed. The poor man who had nothing, absolutely nothing in this life, is carried away to Abraham's bosom. We can, for the moment, term it paradise. And the rich man, though he enjoyed everything in this life, is now confined to Hades. And taking this parable and setting it against the backdrop of Psalm 73, um, the, the reason for this dramatic reversal, this incredible change of fortune begins to emerge. Psalm 73 is representative of a reoccurring theme in the scriptures. The unrighteous, though they utterly disregard the covenant of God, live in peace and prosperity, while the righteous, though utterly obedient to God's covenant, languish underneath their boot. So Asaph, the Asaph, the psalmist, the author of Psalm 73 says in verse 3, I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So he considered his own estate faithful though he was, yet constantly enduring pain and the the the, the degradation of poverty looks at the rich, the unrighteous rich, and he becomes, he begins to envy them when he sees their prosperity. The wicked, he goes on to say in the psalm, aren't subject to the same sufferings as everyone else. There's no pain in their death. They have everything they need and more, and they continually enjoy the finest things of life, or in life. And so the apparent injustice of it all leads Asaph to question his faith. Does God not see? Does God not care? Does he not hear prayer? Asaph says, verse 13, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. He looks at their prosperity and says, What is the worth of any of this? Why am I being righteous? Why am I trying to obey the covenant when those who have the slightest regard for the Lord are prospering. But the turning point comes when the righteous suffering man, Asaph, enters into the Lord's sanctuary. When he enters the temple, there his understanding is illumined and his perspective is broadened. And two things dawn upon Asaph. One, the stupidity of those whom he envied and to his own stupidity for envying them. Comforts and pleasure and leisure are not the reward of righteousness, as if they were ultimate goods. Instead, the Lord is the portion of the righteous. He 
is their exceedingly great reward. Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26, Asaph continues. Speaking to the Lord, he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may, and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. His understanding is utterly changed. Now, some think that because the poor man in our passage is given a name, that the passage isn't a parable, um, but a true story that Jesus is talking about actual events. I think, however, the name that is given is the key to interpreting the parable. The poor man's name, who died outside of, Lazar- or outside of the rich man's gate, his name is Lazarus. And it means God has helped. Again, though the poor man had literally no one, not a single person to stand beside him in his suffering, God was his help. And therefore, when death came for him, he was abundantly recompensed. But the rich man, but the rich man, what was his help? If Lazarus' help was in God, where was the rich man's help? Well, it was his riches. And though his riches proved to be quite the help in this life, it profited him not the slightest in heavenly matters. And so in our reading of the parable, the way Jesus tells it, it begs the question, who is really rich? Or rather, who was really rich? Now, if asked to share in either one of their fates, the rich man or Lazarus, there's not a person alive who would choose the rich man's estate. Everyone would side with Lazarus. Though he suffered in this life, in the next life, he's greatly rewarded. In the end, the only help that counts, the only thing that is able to deliver and secure lasting rest, is the help that God provides. But this truth can only be discerned in God's presence. Asaph, remember, the author of Psalm 73, was troubled. He was full of envy and at the point of abandoning his faith until he entered the sanctuary. And in the presence of that which is truly eternal and incorruptible, namely God himself, Asaph's narrow mind was broadened. The things that formerly aroused his envy, riches and prosperity and comfort, became as nothing and altogether inconsequential. At last, Asaph understood that which is truly good. He says, God is my portion forever. He ceased envying because he realizes what truly matters. And of those that he formerly envied, he now says, verse 19, how they are destroyed in a moment, they are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Is that not a description of the rich man in Jesus' parable? His riches, that he made his help, where are they now? In death, his help failed him. His soul passed into the hereafter, but his possessions and his things stayed. Asaph continues, verse 23. 
with, you, with your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. And is this not a depiction of Lazarus? Though he wasted away outside the rich man's gate, he took to heart God's counsel. And therefore, when death came for him, it was a doorway to glory. The angels, Jesus says, led him away to paradise triumphantly to receive the crown of life to those, the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So the parable then, getting back to our passage, is not a cheap condemnation of riches, a critique that's born from envy and jealousy. Rather, it's an awakening to man's true purpose. A man, though he possesses the entire world but has not the divine help, is a poor man indeed. And a man, though he possesses nothing but does possess the divine help, is a rich man indeed. What do those things of this world count for? What do they matter? Death will come for all, and when it comes, it will equalize everything. And what matters is where one has put their hope. Jesus says in his great sermon on the mount, Luke chapter 6, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. So our passage continues. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and none may cross over there, uh, cross over from there to us. Now, I've become convinced in my study that this passage is indeed a parable. I think that's contrary to the way some interpret it. Um, but what it seems is that Jesus is implementing the common folk understanding of the afterlife into his story. I can explain it a little bit more later uh, after the sermon, but Although the concept of Hades is present in the Old Testament scriptures, it's referred to there as Sheol, this concept of Abraham's bosom, they're, they're in this same contained, uh, uh, containment place. At one side, Hades, the other side, Abraham's bosom, and it's fixed by a great gulf between them. Now, this concept is not from the scriptures necessarily. Sheol is, Hades is, but not the way it's described here. That comes between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the intertestamental period, the writings of Second Temple Judaism. So based on that, I, I tend to think that it is, in fact, um, Jesus is incorporating what the people would have understood at the time into his parable. So I think this commentator gets it right. He says, Jesus adopts existing images without formally incorporating them into his teaching about the next life. Nevertheless, and this is important, he does unequivocally affirm the substance of the images. So though 
in all probability, this story is a parable and does not depict literal realities, it does yield insight about the reality of God's judgment. So, though we're not taking the images as the exact representation, it does yield insight about God's judgment. And I prefer to use that term, God's judgment, um, over the other terms that we use for hell or maybe uh, Hades or whatever, because there's a lot of cultural baggage with those terms, right? We think uh, pitchforks and demons and the like. Uh, but the, regardless, hell is a, uh, or God's judgment is a stumbling block for some. And it naturally invites strong challenge, even for believers. And it usually proceeds along the lines of fairness and justice. God's judgment, it seems, is disproportionate to the magnitude of one's sins. That the rich man's fate maybe wasn't entirely deserved. But this passage portrays something quite different. The rich man suffers, but in accordance with the measure that he dealt out. So take, for instance, the scripture's unified testimony about our judgment. Luke chapter 6, verse 37. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. And do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. There's a direct correlation between the way one treats others, withholding judgment, refraining from condemnation, and freely offering forgiveness, and the way God treats them. You will not be judged. You will not be condemned. You will not be pardoned. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judged, judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. God is willing, it seems, to let us set the standard for our judgment. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. So if one is gracious and patient and gentle with the failings of others, the same measure will be reciprocated back to them. Yet, the opposite is also true. James chapter 2, verse 13. He says, For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. So the one who has stood in judgment all their lives above others, begrudging forgiveness and compassion, pressing the full measure against the, of the law against offenders, will have that very same measure, the one that they dealt out, dealt back to them, as they have shown no mercy. So, the passage says, their judgment will be merciless. Now, the testimony of these passages is quite clear. God lets each person determine the standard and measure of their judgment. And that standard and measure is determined not by just what they want, but how they actually treat other people. And this axiom plays out in the most chilling manner in the rich man's life. To the extent that he disregarded the poor man on earth, daily passing him by, daily scorning him, not even giving him the bread, the crumbs that fell from his table. So to, to the extent that he disregarded the poor man on earth, 
is directly proportional to the extent that he suffered in Hades. His agony is great because he was so deeply calloused and hateful to the poor man. It's the reverse of the golden rule. We are commanded to treat others in the same way we want them to treat us because in the end, we will be treated the same way we have treated other people. Again, consider the scripture's testimony. Romans chapter 13 verse 8. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Implied here is that we owe our neighbor love. By virtue of their dignity and their inherent worth bestowed upon them. It is our duty to treat them accordingly. But what happens if we fail to give them what we owe them? It becomes our debt. If we fail to give our fellow man the love that is owed to him, particularly the poor, it becomes an outstanding debt against us. And if that debt remains unpaid, unforgiven, and still remaining on one's account, its full measure will be required of us. And so is that not just? It is. God's judgment is not capricious or arbitrary, but rather as fair as it could possibly be. You've heard the principle that what you put into it is what you get out of it, and what you get out of it is what you put into it. It's as close to a universal rule as we have in our culture. Right? How ridiculous for someone to complain that they didn't get a raise when all quarter long they've been lazy and they haven't been working hard. And they've been disregarding their duties and calling in late. You get out of it what you put into it. And so it is with God's judgment. There's no protesting the unfairness of the divine verdict. The injustice of one's fate. Because God is only measuring to that person what they have dealt out to others in their life. The measure that you measure with will be measured to you in return. And so this is Jesus' message to the Pharisees. The day of accounting is drawing near, right? Their time is, is getting closer. And he's telling them, you have been unrighteous. You've been squandering everything entrusted to you. Rather than taking care of those under you, you've been oppressing them and, and making yourself rich off their backs. And so he's telling them, a judgment hangs over your shoulders, But there remains time. Amend your ways. There are many poor people, Lazaruses, that lie outside their gates. And Jesus calls them to recognize that and to act accordingly. As we read last week, to make friends that will receive them into the eternal dwellings. He's holding out an opportunity. Jesus, however, knows how things will turn out. Luke 16 verses 27 through 31, and he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not come also to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. So the rich man's fate is sealed. What's done is done. 
The chasm is fixed. No one can cross from one side to the other. But there remains, for, there remains hope for his brothers, <clears throat> his five brothers. And it's really these last verses that are the point of the parable. The rich man's fate is, is an example, or ought to be an example. And his brothers are those whom the Pharisees are to identify with. They are not in Hades, and therefore, hope remains. They still have the opportunity to repent. And so the rich man pleads with Abraham to send Lazarus back from the dead to warn his brothers about this place of torment. Yet Abraham responds, they have the scriptures. Let them hear them. But the rich man is insistent. He knows his brothers. They won't hear the scriptures. They haven't heard the scriptures. Only if something as dramatic and conclusive as someone coming back from the grave will command their attention. Especially if it's Lazarus, the one that's been outside their gate all this time. If it's him, they're going to hear it and they're going to repent. Father Abraham, however, knows the truth. If they don't listen to the scriptures, they will not be persuaded even, he says, if one rises from the dead. And so there's a deep irony about the parable's ending as it's directed toward the Pharisees. Though they were the keepers and the guardians of the scriptures, they knew them front to back. They had studied them all their lives. Jesus says, you're not listening to the scriptures. And obviously they're not. Their actions are portraying the furthest thing from that. And in fact, they abused and twisted the scriptures for their own convenience. And I think that makes sense of the comment that Jesus makes in verse 17. But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of the letter of the law to fail. He says, it's, it's going to come back to you. But <clears throat> they wanted the Pharisees, as the rich man did, a sign. They wanted a sign. That is something miraculous to conclusively prove Jesus' identity. Show me something, God, if you want me to believe you. Prove yourself to me. And that sign indeed was given to them. Not many days after Jesus spoke these words, he did raise Lazarus from the dead. Just a different Lazarus. The scripture says, some saw what he had done, bringing Lazarus back from the dead, and believed in him. Of course, who couldn't? But, not the Pharisees. They took this news to the nation's highest authorities, whereupon the authorities decided to kill Jesus for the sake of political expedience. Abraham's words proved true. They didn't listen. Not even if someone came back from the grave. Their hearts were so hardened. But I think our thoughts must go further than just the resurrection of Lazarus at Bethany. Do we not recognize in the figure of Lazarus, lying outside the rich man's gate, surrounded by dogs and covered in sores, the mystery of Jesus, who the scripture says suffered outside the gate, Hebrews 13, and was surrounded by dogs, Psalm 22. Indeed, I think we must. Jesus is the true Lazarus, the one that God truly helped. Though on the cross, all had forsaken him, all had abandoned him, that he was surrounded by dogs suffering outside the gate, God helped him. He is the true Lazarus, risen from the dead. And as such, he is God's true and great sign. 
is faithful witness that he beckons us to believe. That is God's sign. That is what he has given us. Let's pray.